Hi, welcome to the third podcast of Learning Educators, Dr. Carrie Burkowski, Dr. Paula Clark, Brianne Roos, and Kristen Barber coming together to continue our interesting conversation about what does it mean to be an educator who's a learner. And if you've been following us, you know that our first couple of podcasts have really been just unpacking this idea of learner identity. And in our last podcast, we just dove in deep to what is identity, what is the identity of a learning educator, and why does it matter, and how do we do it? And when we last left, we decided to name our one value. Each of the four of us kind of picked one that we hung our hat on and said, this is what we're going to be held accountable for in the weeks between our next podcast. And then to be able to report back on any progress, steps forward, steps backwards. So that's where I'd like to start today. Um, just as a reminder, uh, Paula, you talked about patience. Brianne, the value that, that you identified was balance, Carrie's was authenticity, and mine was a growth mindset. So Paula, maybe if you'd like to start us off with patience, and did you have one step forward, two steps back, or were you sashaying in the middle there? Yeah, I, I believe it was a sachet, that's for sure. Um, so, <laughs> so anytime that I had the opportunity to practice patience, I think you know, when I look back at it with my students, it was mostly, I'm very patient, I find, with um, the content. So when students don't understand content or don't understand what I'm teaching them, um, then I can practice patience pretty well. Um, it's more in the, um, the details. So it's more in the discipline. It's more in their motivation. It's more in their attempts to, you know, produce work. Um, that's when I tend to lose patience. But I found, like, the biggest problem I had um, the past month was not being patient with them as learners in terms of trying to rush through the curriculum. So we have these end of course exams coming up and, you know, I'm trying to gauge their learning on a daily basis. We do formative assessments and I'm, I'm really thinking they've got it, they've got it. And I rush them into a, you know, a summative assessment and they just, they just break down and they do poorly. And, and what I don't like about that is that's not good for their confidence either. So I, I feel like that's one thing that I need to work on is just slow down and, and really just teach to them, be patient with their learning instead of worrying about that agenda of getting through the material and moving right on. And that's so true in today's sort of high stakes, accountability, tyranny of the urgent, push it through. We've got a scope and sequence that we've got to arrive. But I really appreciate your distinction between the patients with the content and then patience with the students. That, that's really impressive, just kind of thinking through the dichotomy of that and what's of, what's of greater value. Interesting. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think along with that, too, in, in terms of speaking of identity, you know, we, we don't have the same identities, me as a teacher and them as a learner, and we don't have the same values overall. So I think that conflict sometimes when we're talking about non-academic issues, that, that conflict really gets in the way. Yeah. Paula, do you talk to your students, you know, as you're doing your own sort of reflection and thinking, do you ever sort of bring that to your students, you know, those sort of dichotomies or maybe dichotomy is the wrong word, but just the, the diversity of those values and experiences? Yeah, actually, I just did that today. Um, it's the end of the quarter and I always have these guidelines and you're going to have your work in and this is the due date and I'm not accepting late work. And then, of course, you know, they want to improve their grades. So I'm OK, I'll take this. I'll take this. Well, today I got, you know, 50 pages of late work and that's due from the beginning of the quarter. Please, please take it. And I just can't say no. I I'm like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> you did all the work. Let me just take it. And it's hard for me to have that hard stance on, sorry, the deadline has passed. And, and I got very impatient with them. And they could tell, and it was a frustrating day. And at the end of the period, I just sat down with them. And I said, guys, this is why I'm impatient. And I said, what can we do about this fourth quarter? You know, and of course, they were all like, oh, just keep accepting it late. And I'm like, no, that's not the answer. <laughs> um, but, but I did have that conversation with them. I think they were surprised too. They were like, oh, you're asking us our opinion. So um, I was honest with them and said, I was not patient today. So yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think even in the moment, if they didn't um, re respond in the way that you had hoped, right, they just wanted you to keep doing yeah. more. I'll bet you 
in a couple of weeks or maybe after school, they thought about that again, right? So like you might not see sort of an immediate response, but I'll bet you long-term that had a tremendous impact on them. Yeah. So I think it was great I that you did so. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and thinking about sort of the authenticity, Paula, that you mentioned of sitting down with them and saying, this is why I'm frustrated. I wonder if that leads into, Carrie, what you were talking about with authenticity. Yeah, it could. Good segue, Kristen. I like tell you. I heard that word and I thought, oh, I'm up next. So, (laughs) yeah, so I have definitely been trying to live that value of authenticity. I think it's, for me, it's really important. Um, I think if I'm if I'm living my authentic self, I'll share with our our audience that we've felt a little chaotic today. Partly maybe because of the everything that we're hearing about the coronavirus. Partly because of schedules being adjusted. And I think the great thing is we as learning educators are just going to do it, and it's going to happen organically. And and we're trusting each other that we're going to have great things to contribute. So I think saying that sort of gets to the point that I really wanted to make with my story. Um, I've been doing some of my own podcasting, partly inspired by the work that I've been doing with these, uh, my great colleagues, and I've also been blogging a bit. And so you can imagine that putting yourself out there as Paula, Brianne, and Kristen also know, like putting yourself out there is super vulnerable, but it doesn't really work well unless you bring your whole self, right? So I've really been trying to practice that sort of authenticity. Um, I think the interesting thing, and again, this is why I brought up the, the sort of feeling a little chaotic today is the other thing I've realized about these values, and Paula, I wonder if you feel this way about patience, is I kind of feel like this, this, this identifying of values and living values, it's this hilly journey. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is it's not a competency that you check off a, you know, you don't check a box. Like I don't all of a sudden decide I'm going to live this authentic life, live this authentic life and say, I'm done. Because I can tell you that when I podcast and I think today, because we had some disruption to getting ready for this podcast, you sometimes find yourself right back at step one where you feel nervous and vulnerable and you're like, wait a second, I was just living that value two days ago. What happened to all that Mm -hmm. confidence, right? So I think talking about these values and also talking about critical reflection today, they really go together because without both, you can't do it well. Um, so that's sort of what I've been thinking about in preparation for today. Which is kind of a nice segue about doing both, right, into balance. Um, yeah. And Kristen, you asked Paula about a sachet. I think that's too gentle for what's happening in my world right now with balance. <laughs> it feels much more like um, a frantic running in a hamster wheel, um, mostly because of the coronavirus. So our university just last night suspended face-to-face coursework, and so we are in the thick of how are we going to do this? How are we going to get everybody, the students home? And then how are we going to transition quickly from face-to-face to effective online teaching? So there's a lot of balancing for me. I mean, wanting to be really prepared and have that all teed up and also being uh, real and responsive and kind of open to what students are feeling right now. And I was had an email exchange with a student last night. She's very diligent and was asking about how to submit an assignment. And I said, you know, we'll get to that, but how are you? Like, what's the vibe on campus? How are the students and she wrote back and she said, we're totally freaking out. We're freaking yeah. out about getting home and really worried about what online learning looks like because our undergraduates really don't have much experience with that. So there was a balance there for me between you know, the logistics of, of getting assignments in and kind of being present for them and understanding where they are uh, with this whole totally unprecedented circumstance that we all find ourselves in. And and what I love about these podcasts, and Carrie, you mentioned this word already, is organic. We, for for our audience listening, we definitely do preparation. We have pre-meetings before to discuss what research are we going to bring up, what topics are we going to cover, but we trust one another and our experiences and our, our knowledge base to be able to say, this is our talking outline, but who knows what's going to come up in our conversations. And so just hearing the stories um, that the three of you have shared already, my value was growth mindset and I was prepared to talk about a situation of a a new training that we have developed and and how it was in mathematics and my background is in reading and as a speech and language pathologist but just hearing what everybody's talking about this opportunity to have a growth mindset of saying how do we need to adjust ourselves in the current situation to be able to respond to the needs of our students to have paradigm shifts and be willing to say it's different and we can handle the difference 
It may be a little uncomfortable. It may stretch us. We may make mistakes through this, but we're going to come two months out, three months out, six months out from this sort of social and, and um, global health crisis that we're experiencing and be different because of it. Be different as educators, be different as learners and students, and just having an open mindset to what are the values that we can learn through this challenging time that will help us um, better be able to educate and reach our students. So I, I really appreciate the perspectives that each of you have brought already. And our hope in just sharing this value and bringing our own experiences to it is to, in a way, model for our audience and model for one another this enacting of critical reflection. And so one way to cultivate um, identity development is to implement critical reflection into everyday practice, not only for ourselves, but also modeling it for our students. So today, what's unique about our podcast is that we're going to look at sort of four lessons or four key takeaways that we want to focus on. And um, the first in our episode today is how do we support identity development in particular related to critical reflection? So what are those actions that we do within critical reflection that can help develop our identities as learners? Um, the second lesson is just thinking about types of critical reflections. When do we do it? Our third lesson for today is steps, sort of what are those practical application pieces that we can consider incorporating as professionals and modeling for our students. And then that fourth one, um, certainly in my sector in nonprofit education, we're always looking at what's the return on investment. As educators, we're looking at what's the return on investment with this particular instructional practice and our student outcomes. And so those, those are gonna be the four sort of lessons or vignettes that we focus on today. So the things that we actually do within critical reflection, we've come up, some, we've come up with some ideas that we wanna share with you from storytelling to dialogue to appreciative inquiry to culturally responsive teaching so so maybe Carrie if you would um, just sort of start us off on some of the thoughts of what are the things we actually do when we engage in critical reflection how did I know you were gonna come back to me Kristen <laughs> I, I have a funny feeling about today's podcast but, um. <laughs> so I think um, if I remember when we were, because Kristen's right, we do, um, whether you believe it or not, we do prepare for these podcasts. Um, and, our, and the conversation that came up around this first sort of takeaway was really trying in some ways to set the stage and think about the context in which we all work, right? And so I think what we started to do is when we think about identity development, if you remember from the last podcast, really understanding who you are, what that means to be you, whether it's a learning educator or some other hat that you wear, right, internally, and sort of how do we have those conversations and, and what spaces do we have those kinds of conversations and do that work? And so we started talking about, you know, I know Brienne with her dissertation work has done some stuff with appreciative inquiry. We've talked a lot about um, culturally responsive pedagogy. Um, I certainly spend some time talking about and researching cultivating belonging and then storytelling. And I think what happened was we sort of landed on this idea of critical reflection being a thread across all of those different sort of mechanisms or methodologies, pedagogies, whatever you want to call it. So I think the first takeaway is, is to remember as you listen to a podcast about critical reflection, this isn't the only way to do this work. That if you're already sort of immersed in culturally responsive pedagogy, there's lots of ways to, to um, think about identity development. And perhaps you could consider integrating some of the critical reflection that we talk about today um, in your own context. Um, I'd really like, I, and I apologize, I'm going to be, again, living my authentic self. I love the notes we have on examining ass assumptions, and I'm not sure who contributed those. Honestly, we talked about so many things. So I'm actually going to toss it back to Kristen because I think she did craft that. So Kristen, 
if you wouldn't mind unpacking that, because I think regardless of how you enter this identity development, assumptions are relevant across all of these things. So do you want to talk a little bit about that before we move forward? Yeah, thanks, Carrie. You know, I've really been challenged with this, this idea of assumptions. And, and Mesero talks a lot about um, the purpose to examining ex- assumptions is to elaborate frames of reference. Mm-hmm. And he defines these frames of reference as the structure, kind of that scaffolding of assumptions, which allows us to filter or understand, provides meanings to our experiences. So these frames of reference, they shape and establish our expectations, our thoughts, our feelings. And so if our assumptions are these sort of structures, we need to step back and evaluate, critically reflect upon, what am I assuming about this learner? What am I assuming about their background, their experience, their interests, their motivation? Um, Brianne talked about in one of, I think it was our very first podcast where you had to recalibrate, wait a minute, I'm all excited about this lesson, but are my students <laughs> excited about this lesson? And let's, let's see if our assumptions are aligning together. And then that, that how these frames of reference, they include habits of mind and how these habits of mind are sort of these broad, abstract, predisposed ways of thinking. And Carrie, you and I were on just before the podcast and and we were getting a little political in our conversations talking about how we grew (laughs) up and, you know, what kind of backgrounds we grew up in and how they probably shaped and influenced how we're perceiving the world and our meanings of, of these experiences. But then the distinction between habits of mind sort of being these predisposed ways of feeling and thinking, points of view is where we express these habits of mind. So Mm -hmm. it's in the conversations, it's in the actions that we have with our students, with our colleagues. So this is where our beliefs about ourselves, about our students, it's where our judgments and attitudes come that then define the particular interpretation. So what does that mean for me as a a learning educator? I've got to step back and say, what are the assumptions I have about myself as an individual, as a learner, the way I approach teaching, the way I interact with my students, with my content? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that for me was a, a pretty significant reality check of, wow, I've got some, I've got some heavy lifting work that I need to do cognitively and in, in reflecting and emotionally reflecting on these uh, habits of minds and points of view. I love the, I just love, I, I mean, I loved reading it and I love the way you articulate it. Cause I just, it just, it just makes so much sense to hear you talk about points of view as being sort of the, the mechanism through which we can sort of observe some of our habits of mind. Um, I think maybe for a future podcast, just to put sort of a breadcrumb, it made me also think about this idea of knowing not only your own point of view, but interrogating the points of view of others, which is related to building empathy and understanding somebody else's perspective then leads to resilience. Um, So I think there's a future podcast in there where we could sort of unpack this idea of resilience and the relationship there, Kristen. Um, Because I think those, that whole notion of being able to interrogate your own and others really can, I don't know. I think it's really powerful. I don't want to be too dramatic, but I do believe that it's really powerful. Paula, you look, um, contemplative. I want to hear what, I want to hear what you're thinking. <laughs> yes, I'm, 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 I'm very pensive right now. So I'm thinking about, I'm just connecting the dots and listening to what you and Kristen are talking about in terms of my analysis of my patients in particular. Mm. And, and I really think that the way that Kristen described the habits of mind and the points of view, you know, are really what I was conflicted with this week when my mind don't match my students. So I'm assuming they want to turn in their work on time. They want to get good <laughs> grades and, and maybe they're assuming that I'll accept it. And any, you know, so we're all making assumptions and, and just, it just brought back that whole conversation that I was having. You know what I was, I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, since we are all experiencing something different with the threat of the coronavirus and you know, how that's going to impact our workplace and, and our families. Um, that's when our habits of mind, I think, really kind of shine through is it's a brand new experience. Like we get used to our habits of mind and we practice them daily and we don't even think about them. Um, They're just there. But when we come into a fresh experience like we are, um, that's when we really um, Mm -hmm. get a chance to reflect on those like, oh, that's how I'm going to react, you know? So, so um, 
that idea of habit and pattern. I'm just kind of thinking of our patterns of behavior and, and really critical reflection and how that it can apply in terms of, you know, we don't always name it. We don't always say this is my habit and this is my point of view. We just, we just go on and we never Default. make ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And we, we don't force ourselves. Um, Smith did an article um, and with mathematics teachers in general on self-study through narrative inquiry. And the study was, you know, engaging pre-service teachers in this narrative inquiry. And from that, as the educator of educators, Smith was expounding on what she learned from the experience. And, and one particular thing that came out of that was the idea of noticing, naming, and reframing. Mm-hmm. So, so again, even our assumptions and our habits of mind, when we reflect on them, and we have to actually point them out to ourselves or to somebody else, um, and then rename it, reframe it, and then it becomes part of us and our identity. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to come to you, Brianne, in a second, so be ready. Um, (laughs) I think the other thing that, um, again, this is why I love this conversation, the other thing that came to mind when I was thinking of points of view is that, Kristen, as we go through these other lessons that you mentioned, I think one thing we also have to sort of name, as Paula noted, is that we go into spaces because of the work we've done with putting value on critical reflection but we cannot assume that that is the point of view of our audience. And when Brianne and I were meeting this morning to sort of prep for today, Brianne mentioned, and I hope she's going to share, um, how she sort of brings both the reflection and the outcome. So we were talking a lot about process and outcome. And so oftentimes we're so focused on outcome because of accountability which then is giving an implicit message that that's what matters more and perhaps is your point of view. And Brianne did a really nice job of reminding me that we need to shift that focus. And I don't know, Brianne, if you want to now, but it would be great just to hear sort of some of the things you were talking about earlier. Yeah. So we were talking about this idea of process versus outcome and kind of formative and summative assessment. These are words that we all know in education, but um, in the context of reflection, I was thinking about some assignments. So um, I came sort of to this idea of rewarding students for process. And I I do it, but I don't think I ever realized that I actually do it. I never had had really thought about it in this way. Um, So in an anatomy course, it's pretty straightforward. It's so objective. It's right or wrong. And there's quite a bit of content for them to learn. So there is um, a process where they get, they have low stakes quizzes every single class and they earn points. So they're rewarded for the process of regular studying. And those points are added on to that unit exam. So pretty straightforward. In a different course, an adult neurology course for seniors, it's kind of a a bridge course to get them to thinking more like graduate students, more in an application-based way. And so we do some problem-based learning. And they're, you know, given novel cases. And one of the things that they're graded on is the process of working together to come up with a hypothesis and then coming to meet with me and share that process. So it really doesn't matter to me whether they came up with the right or wrong diagnosis. I just want to know, how are you thinking about this? Which parts of the case led you to this, um, to your hypothesis? And if it's right, that's great. And you move on. And if it's not, let's look back at the case and kind of figure out which other more salient points might help you to get to the right, to the right diagnosis. So there is a lot of reward there for the process. And then a third assignment also in that course asks students to um, complete a neurological screening, a cognitive screening on an adult, um, just as a practice. They're not practicing clinicians. This is just an, uh, an exercise. And on the syllabus, if you were to look, the outcome is, you know, it names the project with a point value. But actually, the project, the points that they earn have nothing to do with the scores that they um, that they gather on the assessment tool, it's all about the process. So what they have to do is they have to critically reflect on their process. What was the most surprising part of um, administrating or administering and scoring the test? Did the scores match up with what you thought they might have for the particular patient and why? So it really is all about the reflection and the process. Um, That's what they're ultimately given points for. I just love, I just, that was a really important point to bring up. And as we talk, as we start to get into these other lessons about types of reflection and what to do, I think that's something to keep in mind that we cannot assume just because we're big believers in critical reflection. Right. Um, it's often, let's be honest, it's often to the contrary, right? We get a lot of collective eye rolling. So um, I just thought Brianne gave me a really good lesson and reminder when we were prepping. So 
Great example of that. And, and a good lead into, you know, how, how do we focus on the, the types of critical reflection? When are the opportunities to do it? And we've, we've identified three, the after the event, sort of called the post event, uh, reflection in action in the moment, and then assessment. And, and Brian, I think you had some good ideas. If, if you wouldn't mind sort of keep going with some of the thoughts that you had about um, some of the, the types of critical reflection. So I think that the ones I was talking about are mostly post-event. Um, and when Carrie and I were talking earlier, she was sharing some in-the-moment reflections. So in, in kind of a higher ed context, Carrie, I think you were talking about um, sort of what I was alluding to in that first podcast when students just aren't responding. And for me, I reflected on myself and thought, what can I do differently? But Carrie, you had a different suggestion that you like to do. Yeah, I was saying, so I think the sort of default reflection there is to sort of wait till, you know, wait till that, that awkward and terrible moment passes <laughs> and you go on to something else. <laughs> and then after class, you're talking to a colleague about how lousy that felt and what you did wrong or what you could have done. And what I've, what I've tried to do is I've, I don't know, just felt less worried about what's going on, you know, right, how students are feeling about me in the moment. What I'll sometimes do is literally hit the pause button or call a timeout, and I will, you know, we had talked, I think, before about when you don't know the answer, ask a question, <laughs> yes. right? So it's a similar thing. When I don't know what's going on, I will call a timeout and say, all right, everybody, wait a second, like this class discussion doesn't work with me just lecturing like this isn't what the so I'll just say this wasn't the design of the I when I do workshops for example when we're supposed to be giving feedback to each other if they're not doing peer-to-peer -peer communication they've sort of defeated the purpose we've defeated the purpose of the exercise and so I'm trying to do my own you know in process in the moment in action reflection and model right that process for them and nine times out of ten if I give them a moment and that's the key right we they always talk about being able to take that pause whatever it is that five second pause five minute five second or ten second pause they'll usually come around and, and they'll say you know this stuff is just really making me nervous I'm so stressed about these deadlines so then we'll have like a side conversation about that and then get back on task so um, whether you do it internally or do it with your students, I think both can have a positive effect, have benefits. Well, Carrie, and I think what you said that in the moment, and Brianne, this attests to you too, in the moment is requires much more intentionality than I think post-event or sort of these low stakes assessment because we're, we're used to that. That's part of part and parcel of our approach in, in education. But the in the moment, we think we don't have time. We've got this content we've got to teach. We've got these goals we, we want to accomplish accomplish these ideas to communicate. But but Reuven Feuerstein, and I mentioned him, I think, in the second podcast, one of his favorite taglines was, just a moment, let me think. <laughs> mm. And so he he always would, would recommend, take a step back, model that for your students, just a moment, let me think. How am I feeling? What do I understand? Is it clicking? Is it clunking? How am I feeling about this? Um, but that takes intentionality, almost to say to our educator friends, write it in your lesson plan. Yeah. Just a moment. Let me think. Let me pause. Let me model that for my students and let me ask my students to engage in that and then begin in that discourse. You know, Mesereau talks about that. Schoen talks about that. The importance of discourse in bringing thinking from internal to external so we can all begin to craft and, and shape those ideas. But that in the moment critical reflection, I find unless it's intentionally planned for, just is not a default for the way that I interact with learners. Yeah, and it's hard too, Kristen, right? Like it really is. So to be intentional also assumes that you have some practice in mind. And so I think, um, you know, the good news is with critical reflection is even though it still feels like it's, um, I don't know, again, the collective eye roll comes to mind. There are so many people, researchers, you know, Dewey, uh, Shown, you mentioned Kolb with experiential learning. There's Gibbs and his reflective cycles. There's even one I just was reading about today with a student. Um, there's these six stages of a coaching cycle with reflection. So like what I would recommend to people who are newer to this work is to find one. Like it doesn't really matter whether it's three steps, five steps or seven steps, like just pick one for now and like try to enact it in your everyday world. And that just, eventually you'll adapt it to your own style, but sometimes you just need a routine 
um, to sort of get you started. So Paula, it looked like you were going to say something. I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 in. not at all. I'm, I'm listening to everyone because this is the area that I felt in terms of like a K-12 educator, um, we don't do, I mean, we don't do a lot of the post-critical reflection unless, you know, it's, it's forced upon us. Um, but I, I, feel, I feel like this was the area that I had the most questions on and how to implement it. And I also noticed, I think um, um, it was the researcher Roe that, that coined the term wait time or wrote initially about the seminal work on, on however long you have to wait for a student to answer and it generates more thoughts and it generates more curiosity. Um, but a lot of what we do with our students and we profess with our students, we don't use on ourselves. So, so we're, we want them to reflect. We want them to self-assess. We want them to self-monitor. We want them to critically reflect, but, but we don't do it. You know? So this in the moment piece, I thought, well, if we applied that just as you were all talking um, to the wait time and, and, and even just pause for a moment and say, let me think about that you know? and, and, and just give ourselves that time. You know, I find that you're rushing through the 45 minutes and, and like Kristen's point, you don't have time or you don't even think to stop for a moment. And it also reminded me when you were talking about forcing yourself to do it of um, deliberate practice and how to become an expert at this. So the difference between novices and experts and Erickson talks about you have to make it deliberate. So making that a deliberate practice and, and pausing periodically and not rushing. I just feel like we're so rushed, you know, and, and, and we're not we're not getting we're not getting things done of quality because we're trying to speed through it all. Yeah. Um, I think um, you made me think, and I know we're going to get to this later, Kristen, with, with sort of returns on investment. But the thing that popped up for me as you were talking, Paula, was, you know, Donald Schoen talks about sort of the technical problems and the sort of, um, he calls them swampy problems. And we could do a whole podcast on why that probably isn't the best term, but I won't go there right now. Um, but the point he's trying to make, and I think, if folks are still skeptical of why you should do critical reflection, if you want to think about a process having an outcome, the outcome would be this 21st century skill of adaptation, right? So this idea that if you can reflect in action or in the moment, just like we were talking about the coronavirus and Brianne having to sort of go from being a face-to-face teacher, instructor, professor to online, like she's able to do that partly because she's able to adapt. And so we don't just want our students to know how to multiply six times six. We want them to know what to do when a problem that they've never encountered pops up. And, the only, and one of the ways to do that is to use a process like reflection and give them the time to do it. So if you're still a very outcomes oriented mindset person, you can translate critical re reflection into real outcomes like being a problem solver and an adapt, you know, being able to adapt. So just wanted to toss that in there. I think adaption or the ability to adapt is so critical and I'm sort of deep into this technology um, literature as I finish up my program and there's work by Kurzweil and Graflin which sort of startlingly talks about the exponential growth of technology and um, the fact that current kindergartners, nearly all of them will have jobs that do not exist right now. So how can we possibly train them for things that we don't even understand because they, they don't exist? So ideas like teaching um, people how to, be, how to adapt, that's really critical yeah. right now as we are in the throes of this exponential growth. Yeah, that's a really, that's a great point, Brianna. I hadn't, I, I get that, but I hadn't thought about it. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I think the other thing to consider, again, for benefits, and because we mentioned, Kristen, that last kind of critical reflection is assessment. And Paula, you might be able to speak to this more in the K-12 to setting because there's definitely a more, um, I don't, I don't want to unfairly say a high-risk accountability mm -hmm. environment, but it feels that way versus higher ed. Mm -hmm. I think we miss a huge opportunity to do some really valuable critical reflection because we are too focused. We're not taking Brianne's tact, which is to, to value the reflection. We only value the outcome, right? The did you, did you do it or not do it? And I think in uh, teacher evaluations, observations, all that sort of stuff, we could really use some more thinking about the role of critical reflection and how to make that. Paul, I don't know what your experience has been in that realm, um, but yeah. I'd love to hear more from you. Sure, I think in that, in that 
respect, I think, the evaluation stage is not a time to critically reflect, even though they market it as that it is. Mm -hmm. So I just went through my evaluation process with my principal, and he wrote up the evaluation and you know, did all the things that he was supposed to do and sent me a document and that was the end of it. So we didn't talk about anything. We didn't reflect on it. I mean, I couldn't pursue that. I could go to his office and ask questions about it, but they market the assessment. It's called OTES in the state of Ohio as a time to reflect and a time to develop. And you have this professional growth plan and you're going to work on it. But the administrators and maybe, you know, a lack of time is an issue, but they come in, they observe you, they walk out, they give you your score and that's the end of it. So, so again, you know, again, going back to my point of what we do for students, you know, we, we certainly hopefully give them more feedback than that and involve them in the feedback process, especially as they get older. Um, you know, but they're not doing that with the teachers and it's not a source of critical reflection at all. You know, and again, you know, there's that issue of trust. And so when you're, when you're asking somebody to assess you or evaluate you, um, there's not always that trust issue that you might have with a colleague. So I think it'd be really cool for, um, for teachers to, and we pointed this out in, in the podcast prior to this, you know, to get together and observe each other and really to make it true, honest, critical reflection, you know, give them something. I want you to watch for this. I want you to watch for that and have that conversation. So if, if a teacher doesn't feel like they can have it with an administrator for whatever reason, they're evaluating them and assessing them, um, they can have it with colleagues. And, and so to open that door, um, kind of like I think what you're doing, Brianne, at your college and, and open that door to have colleagues observe each other and, and really use it as a learning process. It's, it's only through that reflection um, that we can make it a part of our identity you know like what what did we like about the lesson what did we like about how we interacted with the with the kids and I really think it has to focus more on pedagogical content knowledge mm -hmm. than it just does math content or English content because it's really about the teaching process again going back to the process so I think if we think about um, just what Paula said when you you were talking about sort of the purpose of this like your principal came in you put a check in a box because that's what you do in the state of Ohio um, it reminded me of the purpose of research. So the purpose of research should drive your methods and it should drive your research questions and really the whole rest of your study. So what is the purpose of the evaluation? I think if, if the purpose is for the principal to come and, and that's part of your process, that's one thing. But like you were suggesting, we had this opportunity at my university to participate in a group of, of faculty who's come together for the purpose of improving pedagogy and improving teaching. And so when that's the purpose of the group and the get together, and the observation, it changes everything. It changes the measures, like the rubric that I use to evaluate my peers is probably vastly different than the rubric your principal is using, you know, when he evaluates you. So, and we think about the purpose um, and maybe coming together for a different purpose, we could probably drive some small changes um, that we could then scale up. And, and what I love, what we're just talking about here, Rodiger Brown and colleagues in their book, Make It Stick, talk about the purpose of assessment not being an end product to evaluate this is what's been accomplished, but the purpose is just as much for learning. So Brianne, what you're talking about, the rubric that, that you're using is, what have I learned? What have I want to change? And Paula, that's what you were talking about, being among your peers and the pedagogy of the improvement science of, I'm doing this assessment not to give you a value placement on you scored this high on the rubrics, but what do I want to change? What have I learned? How am I going to take this information and have it be transformative in my practice so that it's different because of the time that I spent engaging in, in critical reflection? And I think that's the whole purpose. I mean, if you think, you know, critical reflection just in and of itself is an action that's a good action, but what's the value on it? What's, what's the change? What's the mechanism? If it's a mechanism to produce something different, um, that's a, a real benefit too. And we'll get that in into our lesson four. Um, but we talk about this idea of how do we take steps towards critical reflection. Brianne, you talked a little bit about this, this faculty group that you're together, you're observing one another with a different rubric. I'm curious, how did this group form? What was the impetus behind it? And how did it get started? Is it supported by leadership? And, and how's it working out in your context? So it's working, I think, well. Um, we are the second cohort, and it's a two-year appointment. So you apply. Um, and it, it was born from the administrators. They found that there was an absence of really intentional examination of teaching. And so um, they opened up the 
this group's called the Faculty Fellows and people applied last year. So the, the first cohort is in their second year and I'm in the second cohort, so I'm in my first year. So there's some nice overlap. And um, we're asked by administration to just consider some major themes that are going on at the university. And our charge is to align high impact practices with sort of um, mission focused learning aims at our university theoretically so kind of in a big table like how do these align and then also really importantly in a practical way and we're doing it across disciplines so it's a liberal arts university and everybody in this group comes from a different discipline and it's really a nice opportunity as paula has said in, in prior podcasts to talk with people from a different background uh, because i don't know anything about business um, or theology but to get to see how my colleagues are employing these practices in their context is is really exciting and makes me a stronger educator. And, and what I hear in your voice every time you bring it up is there's this refreshing. You know, we so often talk <laughs> about this burnout in education yes. and how the pressures are so high, but every time I hear about you talking about this group, there's a lightness in your voice, <laughs> the excitement is there, and it's like the joy of why you came into teaching is, at least that's my perception when yes. you're bringing up these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a fun group to be with. Um, I mean, there are people I never would, would sit down at a table with just because we're from different departments. Um, but there's a, a likeness in our dedication to teaching and to our students and to really to the mission of the university, which is a nice, you know, common aligning feature for us. I mean, I think this is like, as I was listening to Brian and Paula, I was first when I was listening to Paula, I was thinking, well, no wonder it's hard to be a learning educator. Like, there, in that climate, you have no permission to be a learning educator, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I've noticed, um, mostly probably because as a faculty member, I have the really the privilege and honor of working across diverse dissertations. And one thing I've noticed, regardless of the research question, regardless of the final outcome, whether you're in a K-12, nonprofit, or higher ed, the, the common thread of sort of results in every dissertation is that those participants, those participants value the time they spend with their colleagues. And at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily matter what they're doing, just that they're doing and being together. And I think this podcast is another example of that. I mean, we're all very busy, just like the rest of the world, but we have intentionally committed to building out a couple of hours, you know, well, let's make it hard, like maybe more than a couple hours, but several hours a month that we prepare. And I have to tell you, I love the podcast idea anyway, but, but what's really matters to me more is that I get to have this amazing conversation with three people that I just love being with and talking with. And so it, even though we were a little nervous about the conversation today, I, like Kristen said at the beginning, I just trust that it's going to be a really cool conversation and, and you guys never disappoint. So I just think, again, that time, <laughs> that peer to peer, you know, interdisciplinary, whatever you want to say, we got to figure out how to do more of that and how to support our teachers. Our leaders have to get that that there's got to be time mm -hmm. to do this work because it matters so much. And, and Carrie, you bring up, what are some of those barriers? You know, we've talked about how grand it is, how great when it occurs, but what, you know, for, for our listeners, for our audience, what are those real-time inhibitors that are, you know, um, making it difficult for critical reflection to happen? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is what we keep coming back to. And again, if we had to see a common thread in sort of why faculty or people don't do the things we would like to see them do, it's time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Paula was talking about trying to get through a lesson plan because she's got to hit a certain mark with her math curriculum. I'm starting to believe, and maybe our audience will get mad at me. Um, they don't have my email, so I can't get hate mail, so that's okay. <laughs> I'm starting to believe that that's less the case, and I'm starting to believe that it's more about the other barriers, which are fear and vulnerability. Yes. I think people are really, really scared, for, re for good reason, let's be honest, to be vulnerable, right? I mean, there is, I mean, when you talk about the accountability climate, that's high risk, that's serious business. So I think if we really want to do something and we have permission to do it, I think we'd find the time. I just think we would. Um, so I'm going to say that it's the vulnerability and worry about consequences because we have not communicated or messaged to groups like teachers that they can do this work. Paul, I would love, again, because I'm not in the K-12 space, I'm wondering what you think about that if you 
And if you disagree, that's okay too. Yeah, I, I, I do think time is an issue to a degree. I think it's, you know, I think it's the intent on, on why we're here. So, so when you look at teachers across the board, and maybe it varies by grade level, um, you know, some teachers are in it for the right reasons. Some teachers went into teaching because they want to help students and, and they're willing to do that collaborative piece and do whatever it takes. Um, others are out the door when the bell rings and, and there is, there is no, you know, no keeping them here unless it's for a monetary reward of some sort. Um, but I, I like the idea. And I think that going back to that low, that idea of trust and vulnerability, um, Lowen talks about critical friends and critical friends like you were talking, Carrie, I think we are all critical friends and, and not critical as, as an emergency, but critical as, well, maybe that too, but critical in terms <laughs> of um, critical reflection. So the people that I would want to do that reflection with. And, and I think that for the K to 12 educator, um, especially as it goes up in level. And, and, you know, I was trying to think and reflect back on my years in the elementary school. It seems like maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but elementary teachers might do this more. And maybe it's the nature of their classroom. They're self-contained. They have a small group of, of students. And so they collaborate more on what they might do in their classroom. But then as you get into the middle school and high school, you're all departmentalized mm -hmm. and you're all compartmentalized and you, and you don't do that as much. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering too, like, Brianne, do you see this in, in, the higher education like do people tend to even post event critical refract except for what you're doing now and and Kristen with the one-on-one -on -one ETs like do they reflect would they be more open to this so is it is it something to do with grade level is it something mm -hmm. to do with the you know across grades that people are resistant to it because even even the post event I wouldn't say we do a lot of it do we need to yes is there value in it of course um, but it's it's about establishing that small group of critical friends that you're willing to put yourself out there too like I, I'm thinking of my colleagues and, and even the two that I would invite into my room like I would be a nervous wreck I would be a nervous wreck if the, the three of you walked into my room like it's just it's so threatening to have somebody else watch you teach, but I think we need to do that to get over that fear. Paul, I think there's more time in higher ed in general um, because our days are just not as structured. I mean, if I teach two or three classes in a day, it's, it's a different eight to three schedule than yours. So I do think that there is time. I know that we're publishing, we're doing other things, but it's just a different feel um, in terms of the way that the day is scheduled. So I think that there's some time for that. It's expected that we do critical reflection and critical might be in quotes um, when we do an annual review so every july or summer i write you know, we all write these reviews about what you've done against your goals and that sort of thing um, and mine tend to be really long and i think that's because i really like to reflect um, and i found through this hopkins program and through talking to you all that i had for many years craved this type of discussion and this type of interaction and there were a few colleagues, uh, some of my teaching mentors who are phenomenal and were really good at engaging me with, with this sort of thing. But there were kind of few and far between. And maybe that's, you know, to Brene Brown, Marble Jar, you know, her, her point there. there you're not going to find 20 friends like this probably. Um, but I think that I really needed it. I needed an opportunity to think deeply about what I was doing and why I was doing it. And I found that you know, in our doctoral studies with learning about theory and, and why this works, but then also bridging that always as a practitioner with, you know, what did you do yesterday and, and how are we incorporating that and how can we improve? I really love having the opportunity to do that, but I don't think it's built in to higher ed. I think it's funny too, Brianne, or interesting, not funny, um, to hear you talk about your evaluation process because when I think about the evaluation process that I go through, it's definitely the fear of the sort of novice expert paradigm that we've talked about. And our evaluation is really focused on outcomes. It's like list the hundred things you've done this year, right? <laughs> it's no, and I, um, you know, I think having this group and other close friends, it's because, and I'm not being dramatic, I am desperate for that sort of um, critical reflection professionally like I'm all I mean my colleagues where I work are probably think I'm nuts because I'm always like well how can I do this better like what did I do wrong in this and so my poor students they never hear enough of it right like they're like okay just stop asking us for feedback <laughs> because I just want to know like what I know that I can do this better and that was that was sort of my um, story you know to share about critical reflection because the other thing is if you don't know where to start just asking questions like 
you know, how did that go for you today? Or if, or if you do a lesson, like Paula, if you're doing a math lesson a little bit differently today, there's nothing wrong with checking in with your students to say, can I do a temperature check? Like, how did that go? What made sense? What didn't make sense? And like, the more you do that, the easier it gets to be vulnerable. And trust me, your students give you tons of feedback that is so, so valuable. Mm -hmm. And you do a lot of other things in that dynamic, creating trust, showing them you care, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think building a, a practice of critical reflection doesn't have to be this big, sophisticated, complicated thing. It can be just asking a couple questions every day. Like just yeah, be almost like check-in moments, right? Yeah, be yeah. curious, just be curious, right? Have a, have a mindset of curiosity that could really go a long way. Yeah. As I was listening to you talk, I thought how self-aware as educators you are, but this whole idea <laughs> of this immunities to change, um, you know, Keegan talks about a great example where these patients come into their, their MD, their doctors, and the doctors say you have a heart condition, high blood pressure, you need to take medication daily in order to save your life. Yes, the patients say, I agree, I'm going to take it daily. And such a low percentage of the patients actually change and take the medication daily. So what are these immunities to change? And is it going back to this assumptions of, I think it's this way, but if I step back and critically reflect, then maybe Maybe it is something else that I need to consider, a different point of view, change my habit of mind. So helping ourselves to become aware of what are those immunities to change that are inhibiting myself as a learning educator to changing my practice, changing the way I view a student, changing the way I appreciate a different culture or uh, incorporate that into my practice. Yeah, so Kristen, I was going to say, I was just going to say that, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think this is a nice loop back to what you shared with us at the beginning about mm -hmm. um, habits of mind and points of view. And then Brienne sort of circled in from her faculty group, the multidisciplinary. So like what I'm hearing is like when we aren't able to get out of our own way, we need to have those marble jar friends, yes. right? That are different. Cause like, I can tell you that like one of the beautiful things about the four of us is we all come at these things in very different ways, whether it's preparing for the podcast, right. talking about the podcast, but I love it, right? Like, cause Brienne is like, I think Brienne is sitting there taking notes of the citations we're saying because she knows we're going to ask her to do the APA. And if, if, and if the audience could see me, I got nothing in front of me. So I'm not taking a note because I know Brienne is doing it, but like, just like, like that kind of task oriented things, like it's beautiful but like to be able to be with different people. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, Kristen. I just, I just thought that was amazing what you were saying. It's perfect. It's perfect. So, so as we think about wrapping up today, um, thinking about this return on investment lesson four with critical reflection, we've talked a lot about the process and process versus product or process versus outcome and valuing the process of critical reflection. What is the return on investment that we can think for ourselves, our students, our context that we would want to share with the audience to say, maybe this is something you can bring back to your leadership, to your administration and say, this is a practice that, that I, I believe we want to begin to enact and take steps to do. And here's why there's going to be the return or here's what the return on investment might be. Well, I, I mean, I think in, in terms of the K to 12 educator, I think your return on investment is, you know, more effective instruction. I mean, when you look at the the professional development models, Clark and Hollingsworth model, the Vygotsky space, they always go back to that we need a, a period of reflection before you come back. So you have this internal space, you have this external space, and you're always bouncing back and forth, and that's what improves you as a teacher. Um, in Smith's self-study on narrative inquiry, um, she talked about like this process allows it to become part of you. So going back to your identity, you know, our, our identity as a learner, we, we know we have identities as educators, but we're talking about our identity as a learner. So this critical reflection process allows us to bring it back to us. And what kind of learner are we? How do, what are we going to get out of this? So, so it's that internal external process that just improves our instruction, no matter what. Um, there was a, a really cool article in the latest uh, journal for research in math education. And they talked about, um, 
lesson level uh, knowledge. And wouldn't it be nice if we were talking about doing this among critical friends is, is that a new teacher coming in always has to start from ground zero. So how can this critical reflection process help them? So when they come in and they're part of this critical reflection that we do with colleagues, they're starting up here. So it, it's not like they have to recreate that wheel, but but we have a hard time maintaining that, you know, so, so I haven't finished the article. It's, it's very intriguing to think about the fact that we could have this collective level of knowledge that we don't have to always recreate in, in, in learning from each other. So I think the return on investment is clearly in improved instruction. Well, definitely. Yeah. What you're talking about is transformative learning. Critical reflection changes how a person thinks, not just what they think. So like informational learning increases how, you know, the knowledge and skills, what a person knows, but this transformational learning that comes from critical reflection transforms the points of view, the habits of mind. The key is increases how a person knows. Remember we talked about teaching how to learn in a what to learn culture. That's what critical mm. in me, for me, one of the biggest returns on investment is it's teaching an individual, myself included, how to learn in a very much knowledge economy dominated of what to learn, how to yeah. learn this information. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome, Kristen. I was, I'm going to be honest, I was thinking, what am I going to, you know, I, of course, I'm trying to formulate an answer that sounds half particulate. Um, and I was thinking outcomes, right? So I was thinking, well, we already talked about adaptation. And I think, unfortunately, the coronavirus is a perfect example of being creative. And Brianne mentioned this idea that our young kids don't even know what kind of jobs they're going to take. But you know, what I landed on that I want to share is, I think for me right now, the return on investment, when I'm living that best self, if I can be a little cliche for a moment, like when I'm really in that truly authentic reflection and, and it's only moments, right? I want it to be longer. It's all about, for me, it's mental health hmm. because I cannot even tell you how much less stress and anxiety and worry and fear and just like rushing to plan and get everything figured out and worried that something I'm going to make a mistake if you can just like lean into this is a work in progress, it's a process. Um, I just think it's really good for mental health. Now, um, now I, I will caveat like I'm, these are moments. This isn't my regular <laughs> life <laughs> trying to make those moments longer, but, but I think mental health is in there somewhere for sure. You're speaking my language too bad. I we're know, wrapping right? up Cause that's my <laughs> dissertation. But I will not go there cause that would be another hour. Um, I have to circle back to Carrie's idea about, um, adapting. And I think that when we do this, the return on investment is that we're preparing students to be good people who recognize their own strengths and those change, right? So recognizing their own strengths and they feel ready to use those strengths to improve the lives of other people in a world that's constantly changing. That's the mm -hmm. mission, I think, in higher ed. That's powerful. Yeah. Well, what do we think as, as we look to wrap this up today, we want to encourage our audience to really consider critical reflection in their context, individually, modeling it for the, the, the population of learners that you're working with, having conversations with your administrators, thinking about how would this space in my life personally, the space in my life professionally look different when I engage in critical reflection? And maybe when we come back to the next podcast, podcast four, we can talk about um, some of our own experiences within the four of us um, critically reflecting when we had an opportunity or if we missed it um, and just share some of those thoughts with you. We value your input. You are always welcome. Um, Carrie joked and said, we don't have her, her email out and we won't put that out, but you are always welcome <laughs> to, to email us at, at um, NILD, www.nild.org. Give us your reflections on this podcast. What would you like to hear us talk about? Um, are there challenges that you're facing as a learning educator? Um, thoughts about your identity as developing a, an identity as a learning educator, and we'd love to be able to bring up some of those conversations um, during our upcoming podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. We appreciate you joining us. And Paula, you know that you, we cannot end this podcast without you having the final say. So what great thought do you have for us? <laughs> wow. Talk about vulnerability, pressure, <laughs> mental health, stress. <laughs> All right. Well, Brian, are you ready?
ready because I have two new uh, citations. I'm ready. <laughs> and, uh, so one, one is Lowran. And just talking about, um, Carrie, you mentioned mental health. And, and Lowran points out that critical reflection is necessary not only to help us develop as learners and educators, but prosper. And so it's not just about making it through, but it's about actually mm -hmm. enjoying it and prospering in it. So, so I thought that was really interesting, an interesting take on it. And then in terms of making this a deliberate process that we go through and, and that wait time and trying to put it into, you know, in the moment, um, Mooney talks about the idea that we should meet life with the maximum number of stops. Mm to gain Maximum. experience. So just that deliberate practice, that critical reflection is creating those stops. And so when we meet, you know, our experiences in our, in our context, we try to maximize the stops that mm. we take and then we gain more from that experience. So um, there's my final thoughts for today. I'll say, I'd Bravo. Say Paula, <laughs> Paula needs to drop the mic. There. Bravo. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Good job. Well, thanks for joining us. We look forward to our next podcast with you. Have a great day.